0: You're listening to Power Athlete Radio, a podcast dedicated to empowering your performance every damn day. Join former NFL pro and Power Athlete founder John Wellborn as he dissects the greatest minds in strength, conditioning, and more. So whether your goal is to be the hammer, destroy mediocrity, or simply move the dirt, you've come to the right place. Now with the warm-up done, let the gains begin.
1: Power Athlete Radio listeners. We have a special podcast for you today with Andrew Sullivan, a.k.a. Sully. Sully is a former member of Naval Special Warfare's Development Group. Since retiring, he has put his efforts towards making our community safer by raising the training IQ of police officers. The Community First Project is a registered 501c3 that trains law enforcement with funding from the private sector. The initiative was started by Blue Force Strategies with the singular goal of working to bridge the gap between the high-level training our police require and the funding necessary to execute it. Buckle up, Andrew Sullivan. Hey, welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio. I'm John Welborn, CEO of Power Athlete, and I'm joined by Sully, a.k.a. Mr. Andrew Sullivan. Thanks for coming. I hey, appreciate you having me. Great to be here. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we've been, we've known each other a long time, like old friends. I think we just did a podcast before <laughs> before we started the podcast, right? No, I think we were worried uh, we were going to actually run out, uh, but I don't think there's any nah, chance that we're going to nah, do I think, that. I think we're good. So, yeah. um, you know, we got uh, connected through a mutual friend, Mike Sorelli. Yep. And you have kind of an interesting background and an interesting present mission.
0: Yeah. I'd like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I retired from the SEAL teams not, not too long ago. Well, I guess almost three years now. So I guess that is a long time ago. But uh, how how long were you in? Uh, I, so I'm medically retired at 18 years, so um, that put me in the teams the whole time. So after boot camp, straight to buds or, or a school, then buds, and it was in the seal teams the whole time.
1: Uh, what year did you graduate from buds? Oh three
0: question mark right Some, around there. Oh three oh four. Yeah.
1: So after nine eleven, correct. Yeah.
0: I actually I went to the recruiter of the day after nine eleven. That was I had always had it in my head that I wanted to do this, but I just needed that little bit of motivation to kind of. Walk away from from my career or my life that I was in, and and actually take the risk. And so the next day, I went talked to him and like, hey, how soon can I get on a, a plane to boot camp?
1: What uh, were, what were you doing at the time? I was actually
0: funny enough. I was working for Enterprise Rent a Car. So it, I got out of college. I didn't graduate at that time, but I got out of college. I had a buddy who just started working for them. and He's like, yeah, hey, come on down, man. Whoa, whoa. I didn't know he got a, a bonus for bringing guys in. <laughs> all right? And I ended up doing it for a couple of years and it was, it was interesting. It wasn't the, the best work, but it was all recent graduates of college, right? So it's one of the largest employers of college graduates every year. So you're just working with a bunch of 22, 23 year old kids and you work all day and half days on Saturdays and then you go hang out at night and do happy hours and, it was actually kind of kind of fun learning how to run a business. So, um, not that I would ever want to do it again, but it, it, you know, at the time it was good, and and I appreciate. It. I made some good friends, people I still talk to. Nice.
1: So, and then you, uh, so you go to the recruiter, you join the Navy. Yep. Go in, go into buds, and then, um, yeah, obviously go to your first SEAL team.
0: Go to my first SEAL team on, on the East Coast, which I was on the East Coast the whole time, um, and checked in, started doing school, started learning. It was just. Mouth shut, ears open, and uh, and try to be good at your profession. And next step is is deployments and deployment and deployment and deployment.
1: And well, you kind of hit it. I mean, um, it's it's interesting over the years uh, having worked with NSW and the yeah. seal community. There's a certain kind of age group. Of yeah. guys that are about my age, about your age, yep. where all of a sudden they 27, you know, right? Yeah. 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 I'm,
0: I'm uh, <laughs> hoping to be 31
1: of these days. <laughs> right. But like, it's a kind of an interesting thing where, you know, uh, just by the function of age yeah. and having this war, I mean, you know, like uh, Doc Parsley, you know, he decided to go to med school in like, you know, 2000. Yeah. You know, and all of a sudden 9-11 hits, he's in med school and he's like, shit, I had trained in this and, you know, I was a peacetime SEAL and then I get to go to med school and uh, he kind of like, I, I missed my window. If I had just hung out another year, I would have got a chance to kick indoors. doors. Yeah. I and mean, it's crazy. There's a lot of guys. I mean, when I was going through training, there was nobody that had seen combat
0: that was putting me through training. Right. Because we were in that age between Vietnam and, and, and the next war where we didn't do anything in the Gulf War, really. So... I understand the frustration of those guys, but yes, I hit it at the right time and and it, you can't chase it. If you're going to, you're going to find it, it's going to find you. And, and that's kind of how it was. I just, nine eleven was the motivator. And, and I, I joined and man, two decades of sustained combat, wow. which is a lot, but not a lot of people
1: can say that, right? We just timing was right, I guess. And then what was the, uh, you know, you said medically retired.
0: Yeah. So it, it, at some point in somewhat of a administrative decision when the body just stops working and you kind of have to make that decision whether or not you want to, want to push through it or, or kind of look to the next battlefield. And, and I was at that point at 18 years. And once you kind of get past that 18 and you start to process around 17 and a half, they're just going to push you through to 20 years. Mm-hmm. So you're riding a desk for the next two years. And I didn't want to do that. That sure. just, that just isn't me. So. Um, Yeah, you start the process and it's just going to doctor after doctor and diagnosing all the the stuff you got wrong, which was, which is a long process. And then
1: there's probably not a seal that's probably done as, you know, that length of time that isn't uh, Yeah, half that time.
0: It's amazing what the mind will make the body do when you have that mission and you're, you're front sight focused, we, we say, and you'll work through all kinds of injuries and, you know, you know that coming from, from your background as well. So when you finally st- stop and get off the train and start listening to b- the body and, and what it's saying, you, you realize just how hurt you actually are and what you need to do to fix it, which is an ongoing process. Yeah, so. How's, the, how's your training today? Uh, it, it It's better probably over the last six months than it's been since I got out, but it's, I train based on how my body feels, right? I have my program that I work, but it needs to be flexible. Yeah. You know, I'll wake up some days and I, and I can't stand up. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, I'll, I'll crawl to my medicine cabinet, take some pills, lay down for a little bit, and I'll wake up. And I'm like, all right, yep, all right, I can do half a workout or I, c- I can dial the weight back or the, the performance back, but I'm going to get something in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, kind of showing my age here, I spent 30 to 45 minutes just doing movement prep, stretching, and just getting ready. This is something I never did in the beginning, first half of my career because we didn't know any better back sure. then. Um, and then my workout ends with another 30 minutes of of just stretching and icing and hot, cold contrast, all this stuff that we didn't start doing until probably my body was already in in rough shape. So
1: we interrupt this episode with a shameless self-promotion. Let me introduce you to our holistic athlete movement readiness program, also known as hammer created after working extensively with Naval special warfare, the U S army Marines and first responders. Hammer is battle-tested training sharpened at the highest level, delivering when it counts. If you're a warfighter, door kicker, or first responder, head to powerathletehq.com forward slash hammer and claim your seven-day free trial today. Now back to the show. I remember the first time we went out to Damn Nick, uh, we worked with the guys that were literally a tent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there was that like little, like kind of almost like, a, I think it was like a covered tent portable something yeah. with like some exercise stuff. And we were outside and I remember we were so excited, like, hey, we're going to work with the guys from Dev, uh, DevGuru. And we showed up and I was like, this is where you guys oh, yeah. fucking train. Yeah. And most of the guys are like, yeah, that's why we got garage gyms. Yep. It just was not a good environment. And I remember we were out there doing a bunch of training stuff. And then the next time we went back, they had built a new facility oh, yeah. and they had, you know, light beds and float tanks and had all this yep. really bitch and shit and a really killer gym. And I'm like, Thank God. You've worked in the community enough that
0: there was definitely a kind of a line in the sand moment where we realized how much money we're spending to train guys like me to get to the point of a performance. And to lose somebody from a non-combat injury is just a complete waste of money. So for them to invest in our physical and mental health was was crucial. And, you know, we talked about being in the right age group time to to be in a, in the combat throughout my career. But Man, the first 10 years of that, there, there wasn't the physical and mental performance side of it that we have on, on the second half of my career.
1: And it, when do you think that started or what do you think was the big push for that? Because I know that they were fighting it for a long time because, yeah. they don't, you know, unless it's what beans, bullets and bombs, they don't want to spend money on it.
0: And it's the relationship with the with big military, you know, the big Navy, big army in trying to get them to buy off on something for one community that's not reaching the rest of, of the military. And we are just a, a 1% of the, that community, right? The military community. So I think that was the big holdup. We saw it a long time ago, but to be able to implement was hard. Um, and, and obviously we spent a lot of time downrange, and then to try and get the same thing downrange was even harder. Yeah. So, but they got it done and it still needs to improve, but man, it is head and shoulders above when I came in.
1: It's amazing. Do, do you think it's almost like a cleansing of the water effect where, um, you know, you kind of had the old guard and then all of a sudden those guys age out and they leave and the command leaves and kind of younger guys that are realizing the need, like, Hey, I wish I'd had this kind of come through. And now all of a sudden the command is like, this is more forward facing in a lot of ways. I think in some degrees, yes,
0: but I also think that the older guys like me who were doing the job and going down range and getting hurt and having to recover, or we're, we're seeing the need for it and pushing for it so that the next generation wouldn't have to deal with what we were dealing with. Sure. So, and and obviously the next generation, you know, millennials, whatever you want to call them, they're a lot smarter than us and they, they see that stuff and they ask questions and sure. they push back all the time, which is great, right? You just need to know how to harness that for, for positivity.
1: Did you see a change? Like, I always thought that's funny. Uh, did you see like a kind of change? Because we joke, you know, like we're, I guess, Gen X. Yeah. And now you see like Gen Z and millennials and this other deal. I wonder in the SEAL teams, you know, you had all these kind of Gen X guys. And then all of a sudden these different ones. And you're like, whoa, this is a completely different breed than what we're used to. 100%. And, and it,
0: I, don't know, I guess I have a little bit different opinion. Like we can treat them differently or we can try to find ways to adapt to, how, to their behavior, right? Because if you do that, their behavior, they work in teams really well. It's kind of how we, we brought those people up. Our generation brought up that, that generation. We're the reason they act the way that they act. So we can't expect them to then change because now they want to assimilate to our community that we're in right now. I mean, yes, there is some degree of assimilation, right? They have to do things that, that fit. But we also need, I believe, to be exploring ways to utilize some of their strengths that come from that generation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a lot of headbutting that goes on because just so not used to it.
1: When you were in the, like, like when you were going through BUDS, your instructors- Hadn't been downrange because I guess nope. like those guys hadn't rolled through yet, right? None. I didn't have any instructors that, that had seen combat. Wow. Yeah.
0: So they, we, we were learning Vietnam era tactics. You know, we weren't using night vision back then in Buds. I think, I don't know, maybe it was SQT like after Buds where we got the mono, the, the single tube. Yeah, PDS 14 Yeah, only one guy had him and it was yeah. like the point guy and he just bring it up and look around. It hung in a lanyard around. It wasn't attached to a helmet or anything. And Yeah. Yeah, you know, and we came a long way, obviously. Uh, and it, then there was differences between the coasts as to the tactics and how to utilize it. So it, it was it was a weird time. You
1: think there's a big chip on the shoulder for the West Coast guys to not be as good as the East Coast guys? Not at all, man. It definitely
0: when I first came in, there was. But, yeah.
1: man, I, I think
0: early on in my career, that went away. Once we started seeing sustained combat downrange, it was like, all right, we don't have time for this. It's it still like a good-hearted, yeah. you know, uh, West Coast guy you surfing what you know yeah. great hair yeah, kinda, yeah.
1: San Diego right
0: so there, there, there's that good nature of brotherhood ribbing but I think we've come so far from where we were and even working with other groups um and, and you know our partner forces in the army it's it's changed a lot and, and the perception now is is we're one team we're one fight like we need to be information sharing and knowledge sharing and we can't have that standoffish um, behavior that we had before
1: What um, was pretty interesting for me is, you know, the SEALs were always, well, like, sea, air, land, and really Mm -hmm. just kind of sea focused. And then all of a sudden we go into a kind of a mountain warfare (laughs) environment. And, like, you know, now all of a sudden, like, the SEALs adapt and become these kind of, like, you know, mountain warfare type sand, you know, rock type of deal. And now that since we've left Afghanistan, uh, you know, I'm sure they've gone back to their original kind of designations Kind of like a moving back and yeah. maybe not losing that intrinsic knowledge, but actually going back to kind of the original mission. Would you say?
0: I think we need to be prepared for any mission at all times, and and certainly for for two decades the war was in the desert. So our, you know, our priority on maritime operations was it was still there, but we, you know we weren't going out and diving a lot. Um, we were keeping up the quality, keeping up the knowledge, and we had experts that were were ready to do it if we needed to, but. It, it wasn't the mission at the time. So, you know, as the war kind of slowed down or the wars slowed down, we we definitely have to get those baseline fundamentals back up to par. Uh, anything that we kind of let, let fade a little bit because it wasn't the, the current mission. So, yeah, that's just problem solving. That's what we do. Tier one special operations, we problem solve. And part of that is looking five, 10 years down the road and figuring out what the next problem is and being ready to solve it.
1: So you retire three years ago. And you, you know, obviously being a problem solver, looking for uh, ways to utilize your skill set. Yeah. And you uh, kind of assess that there's basically a huge gap of knowledge and just tactics, physicality, physical fitness. I mean, a lot of things. And that's within kind of the civilian law enforcement community.
0: Yeah. So I got out and... I, I didn't really have a plan. Um, but I also had a retirement, so I didn't really need to have a solidified plan to be financially stable or have you know insurance, whatever. So I was a little focused on all right, I'm gonna be around my kids. I'm gonna do some for profit stuff, training, you know, military, government, SWAT teams. Uh and, and as I'm doing that, I'm watching the, the news and I'm seeing these critical incidents play out in law enforcement as I'm training law enforcement and I'm not seeing the problems in the people that I'm training as I'm seeing it play out on TV. And the more I looked into it, I just realized, you know, I'm, I'm training like 3% of law enforcement. I'm, play, I'm training SWAT teams. The people that actually have budgets have the ability to train and the time to do it, but they're not the people responding to active shooters, acts of terrorism, all this stuff. It's whoever's closest in proximity, which is usually a, a school resource officer or a patrolman or woman. Um, and they have the least amount of training. And I I started to ask the question why, and I was reaching out to my, my friends in law enforcement, um, really close with, with Boston police Mm -hmm. and they just, they don't have the budget for it because it's a, a lot of this stuff is a once in a career event for these cops. So it's almost a roll of the dice that it's not going to happen. So why are we going to spend the money to train it? right? Which it
1: feels a, like the exact opposite, right? Hope isn't a tactic. Yeah. We, we hear it all the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, but it, if your plan involves hope, we got bigger problems. hundred percent.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm thinking, well, you know, if you're telling me that money is the reason that you aren't prepared, I will pay for it and I'll provide the instruction and let's, let's do this. And that's kind of where the idea for the 501c3, the nonprofit came, was I just wanted to give back to that community because I relied so heavily on law enforcement when I was doing my dozen deployments and downrange and my family's home, my kids are home, and, and, man, they looked out for me all the time. And, you know, I, I reached out to my friend Paul Fitzgerald, who was retired superintendent of Boston Police, and kind of pitched him this idea. I had, um, you know, my partner at the time was a, um, you know, our our Partner unit with, uh, with army. So army tier one special operations and ran up by him. And we just like, this is a great idea. Nobody's doing it. Why? And, you know, I know I'm going to get support from my community for, from the instructor side. And we started and we started in Massachusetts and we figured if we could start in a state, that's it's definitely to the left and, but also very pro military pro law enforcement, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of blue collar generational people in that state. And in eight or nine, nine months now, we've been, we've been fundraising. We've hit over $350,000 oh, and sure. we're putting it all back into law enforcement, all going into training, all going into training patrol level officers on fundamentals. And what I'm finding out is, is the training that we get now for law enforcement, that's kind of the standard. If they get it at all is, you know, it's training from people, other officers who are really good at their job. And I don't want to. Come here and say officers aren't good at their job. They're great at their job. Sure. Where they're falling short is that one percent critical incident active shooter because they don't get trained. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, you know, we oh, I lost my train of thought there. But we we start pushing in Massachusetts to get get support. Um, we started fundraising. We we got people to donate and we got departments to actually to buy in and let us come and train. And what I was going to say is we. We realize with these other people that are teaching it, it's people that have never been in active shooter situations, Hmm. learning from a curriculum written by people that have never been in active shooter situations. Seems what could go wrong. Right, right. Being taught by people that have never been in active shooter situations to people that have no baseline fundamental experience on any kind of tactical um, capability. And you have this community of of veterans, 20 years in sustained combat that went downrange and did this for a living night after night after night of being in active shooter situations where people want to kill you. And now we're saying, hey, I'm I'm coming in and I'm gonna teach you guys some of the things that made us handle high stress, high threat better, and I'm gonna pay for it. And man, people absolutely seem to love it, right? Because they need it. But at the end of the day, I can't teach you to be a Navy SEAL in a week. But what I can do is I can identify a lot of the shortfalls in your Aren't training. are a
1: bunch of programs Everything. where you can go as an executive and they basically throw sand on you and make you debate sugar cookies and yeah, they give are. you a yeah. fucking.
0: And we do that um, as yeah. some of our fundraiser things. Like yeah. If you want to come, we call it operator for a day. If you want to pay, make some donations, we'll bring you in. We'll shoot some guns. We'll put you in yeah. you know, some situations that, that we would have potentially seen downrange. And it, it's fun. And it's a cool way to keep the community involved in our mission is when you get to do something fun. Because everybody likes to shoot guns and go yeah. out and pretend like they are something that they never were going to be. It just sure. wasn't in their
1: career path. But it's also, it's such a valuable skill. Um, I, you know, I, I like we were talking about earlier, um, I didn't grow up with guns. Yeah. Um, I learned to shoot at Boy Scout camp and ended up being a pretty decent shot. And then it wasn't, uh, then when I went to college, we were so broke, I couldn't afford anything. Yeah. I was trying to buy food. It wasn't until I read Thomas Jefferson and did some, um, yeah. I was a rhetoric major and there was like a rhetoric of like, I want to say it was like a constitution and like our founding fathers, a class. And I'm just always fascinated by one, the age of our founding fathers. Right. Like some of those dudes were in their 20s. I know. I know. Cause <laughs> whenever you see pictures, they always have these white wigs and yeah. I just kind of always imagine them as like old men. And then when you look at like the ages of the people that signed the Constitution, I mean, the Declaration of Independence, they were like 25, 26, 27. I think Ben Franklin was like the oldest at 70s, but the majority, I mean, Thomas Jefferson, I yeah. mean, all those guys were in their 40s and 50s. I mean, or in their 30s too. So, uh, like, that was really impactful for me when I realized that, like, you know, I mean, you sign your name to this, you're signing your yeah. death warrant. And these guys were willing, you know, give me liberty or give me death. I mean, yeah. they were, you know, they they were about it. They weren't just fucking talking about it. And, you know, as you go in, like, the Second Amendment guarantees the First Amendment and the, the right to bear arms. But I also believe that there was a... Like, very real, like, if we give you the right to bear arms, you have a, like, constitutional right to be proficient with arms. If they have to clear out yeah. militia, you have to be physically able, you yep. have to be proficient, and you have to be able to train enough. You know, like, we were, you were joking, you asked me if I hunt, I'm like, geez, almost every night. Yeah. So, I mean, I shoot so much whenever people are like, oh, we're going to go hunting. I'm like, oh, all right. Like, just because I come, I'm not necessarily bored. I almost looked at it as, yeah. like, a function of just basically eradicating hogs. Yeah. Um. But uh, I really thought that like when you got, and, and I'm not, um, uh, I've met some people that are really obsessed with guns, especially here in Texas. I've been oh, to man. some parties where like dudes will like, I went to this guy's house. He basically opened up this room and I was like, holy shit, dude. I've never seen this like, uh, like, 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 like there isn't a a locker in a tier one organization that wouldn't be excited what right. this guy had and shot nothing. Like the guy collected the guns. I'm like, do you shoot this stuff? Not really. And I was like, oh my god, this is like a can I shoot this stuff? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is like a like a uh, you know I'm not a Ferrari guy, but if if you ask me to drive the Ferrari, I'm going to drive it 200 miles an hour. Yeah. Um. So I I, and I I kind of felt a little not inadequate, but I just didn't know. Like I'm not necessarily like a gun obsessed dude. Like no, oh this and I'm HK. I'm like I don't know, dude. I just like the ones that shoot straight. Yeah. So it was, and I can kill shit with. So, uh, but like that was kind of a a deal where I realized, you know, one, you got to be physically able. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, there was, let's say, a calling out of the militia, because if you think about it today, it's probably going to be people like us. Yeah. You know, opposed for maybe some younger kids. I mean, that was one of the things I, uh, I spoke at a conference on national security. Uh, for uh, the War College out in Pennsylvania like two years ago. And my presentation was on the largest threat to national security has to do with the lack of physical readiness from kids 16 to 18, which would be from our military pool, but also from adults that were like 26 to 40 years old. Because if something were to happen, like, you know, God forbid a million Chinese nationals come across the Mexican border, like who's the people that are going to go out and defend them? It's the same people that we saw when uh, Houston had that huge Um, I don't know if you saw this, but like there was that huge flooding in Houston. There were like hillbillies and bass boats with like lifted (laughs) F-50s trying to go down there to save people so much that there was a fucking traffic jam of those dudes. And I'm like, those are the dudes that like if something bad goes down, like a a collection of hunters and those individuals, like those are the people you call out. And um, I just, and it was kind of ironic that I was at Berkeley at the time, uh, which isn't very... Yeah, not tolerant of not that. not tolerant yeah. of this mindset. But I just remember thinking, like, the day I can afford to not only uh, own weapons but also train and be proficient right. with them, like it's something I have to do as a taxpayer and as American citizen. I hundred percent agree, and I think
0: you're probably in the minority of people who feel that way. Um, and and not I don't mean gun owners, but I think there's a lot of gun owners that aren't tactically or technically proficient. Is probably a better or word. physically proficient or physically proficient, right? But it. You know, I, man, obviously I hope we never come to that situation, but, um, hope is hope not, a good it's plan. Not, it's not a good plan, but I, I know, I know where I stand and I know I would be ready and I know my, my peer group, it, it would be ready. Right. And I, I hope that we get the law enforcement, the law enforcement buys into what we're trying to teach because that really is our first line of defense is, is our law enforcement. And they need to be prepared for, you know, acts of terror. They need yeah. to be prepared for, um, yeah, you know, workplace, school place shootings, all that stuff, and they're just not there
1: yet. Is uh, I mean, like I, I, and and maybe this is a a, a different view because we live here in Texas, which yeah. is a little bit spread out. But I feel like if my first line of defense is dialing nine one one, I'm probably in a deficit,
0: <laughs> right? Like I, uh, you tell uh, me because I think Texas is a standing ground state, yeah. right? But there's a lot of places where you, if you shoot your gun. You're opening yourself up to the possibility of going to prison, yeah. whether you're justified well, or not. Massachusetts. Right? Massachusetts. It is it, a yeah. lot of states like that. So,
1: when uh, when I went to go play for the Patriots, yeah. uh, when we went through our security brief, because they always have like a chief security in the deal, um, you know, I, I was living in California, but I had lived in uh, Missouri yeah. and uh, had owned a bunch of NFA weapons. And when we came back to California, I pretty much had them transferred uh, to a safety deposit box in Arizona because I couldn't mm-hmm. bring anything back to California. And oh, so yeah. uh, when the day that we moved here to Texas, I like swung through and nice. picked up all my stuff. Yeah. I just remember being like, finally, <laughs> I just like oh, I, got my oh, baby. I was my like, man, back. I got all yeah. my suppressors and yeah. SBRs and stuff. And so it was cool to come to Texas where you know you can legitimately Do hunt and use those things. But like, um, uh, I feel like maybe Texas is a little bit different. Uh, I mean, I'd I don't agree. Know. Uh, but I, I mean, for most of these states, I mean, you know, you're talking about first line of defense, and I'm thinking yeah. about, and you talked about like the once in a million opportunity. Deals and I was and instantly what came to mind was um, the Boston Bombers. Yeah, you know it was like a pressure cooker. Yeah, pressure cooker bomb. Pressure Two. cooker bomb, yeah. which I mean, classic. Uh, you know, I mean, you did know. you watch
0: the, uh, the? I think it was Netflix did a did a special. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it it's eye opening to see the response, and that's a uh, so Paul Fitzgerald, one of my partners, he was the superintendent, so. Um, number two, in BPD ran the intel during the bombing. So we've had a lot of opportunity to discuss it and add feedback with the AAR process on how we would have um, done things differently at our level or how we would better prepare if something like that were to happen again. And. and Man, I give them credit. They were very candid on on that documentary and, and talked about some of the stuff that went on. But man, the lack of fundamental training for that kind of event to happen, and that is nationwide, that, that is not specific to Boston, is ridiculous. Yeah. It it, it should be a warning sign to our, our political leaders and and you know, the people doing the budgeting that we need to change. We need to fix the way that we train law enforcement because you can't train on the job, which is what they do, for an event that only happens once in a career.
1: Yeah, but I mean, that could be the difference. I mean, like the Boston bombing deal. Yeah, it could be. And uh, the the other thing that blew me away was um, uh, there was, I mean, those guys weren't, they were on people's radar.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. At least the
1: older brother was. Yeah. I mean, he was, you know, well, you know, he he had been a... Like that's what I kind of, and I realized like we have an interesting balance in this country, right? Like, right. so I have, you know, life, liberty, and spirit of happiness, right? Yeah. I have the life to live. I, I have the right to live the life that I want unabated by other things. But yet there's also like, you're not allowed to be a fucking asshole and come and destroy America. So like, <laughs> yeah. I, I have this interesting balance. Are you though? I feel like, you know, you you know, well, yeah. you know like, so like, I, I like, you know, um, I, like I've, I firmly believe like uh, during COVID I got invited to go speak at this, they called it a freedom rally and the guy asked me to come talk and yeah. my, my piece was always about like, you know, in terms of like our founding fathers, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Right. Yeah. I have the life, I have the right to live my life. I have the right to like whatever, what defines my happiness. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, like I should be able to live my life unabated, right. but yet you're also living with 330 million people and not everybody looks at the same way they are where I'm like, Correct. Hey, uh, I'm not, uh, you know, like the, um, um, Alex Sonienberg who has since passed away, he was involved in that 30 seconds out company mm-hmm. and like, I, I, I love their slogans, you know, it's like, uh, um, you know, expect to self rescue and some of those other right. things, which I think are, are funny tongue in cheek, but they're all pretty they're accurate? Yeah, they're pretty accurate yeah. that like, you know, if there's a bad situation, like I carry a first aid kit. Yeah. I got to go bag in my truck. You need to have a first aid kit. Yep. And, or how many people don't know CPR? Like there was a deal where a guy had a um, recently a um, uh, guy had a heart attack and a dude there had just taken a CPR class and basically worked on the dude for 30 minutes no while the ambulance showed yeah. up and they were like 30 minutes late. And the dude basically was like, I got this and did CPR for 30 wow. minutes, kept the dude's heart going enough to where they ended up saving the guy's yeah. life, you know? And they were like, you know what made yeah. you, he's like, I had just learned it and I knew yeah. if I stopped, he was going to die. So like that dude, if that guy hadn't been there, like I would have died. And so I think yeah. like, you know, there's a level of proficiency that you need as a, you know, especially here in Texas, like you should be able to run some equipment. You should probably be able to weld. Yeah. I mean, I can weld and fix shit. And, uh, I just have always looked at, like, you know, if you have to call somebody on the phone to fix every fucking problem, are you really uh, understanding the framers of our Constitution? Are you really putting yourself, like, are are, are you doing something, like, does that make sense?
0: It does. But that's kind of the country we live in, right? Everything is a matter of convenience. And if you don't have to do something out of necessity because it's so convenient to you, a lot of people aren't going to do it. And, uh, you know, general first aid, that, that is huge you know it's something you know, my kids roll enough I sat down and I took out guns I'm like hey guys this is what guns are like and give them the safety brief and yeah. and you know teaching them how to shoot not that I think they have a big interest in it they they don't but at least they have a, a working knowledge of gun safety because they're going to be in situations with their friends or whomever where they, they probably don't have that working knowledge of gun yeah. safety so again everybody's sitting here on their PDAs doing that and not paying attention to critical life skills that you and I Probably learned because we didn't have the distractions that everybody has now.
1: Well, we also we left contents. the house. My mom told me, don't, you know, don't yeah. get abducted in a van. So you're like yeah. riding around looking for perverts trying to pull you into a van. It's <laughs> yeah, right. so like a big yeah. part of our deal riding our bikes is looking for fucking weirdos.
0: <laughs> yeah. Vans with free candy on the <laughs> side. Yeah, yeah, yeah dude, yeah.
1: just learning to escape and evade, yeah.
0: you know, having uh, I remember we had a little little call sign or code brevities. like if, if I'm in the hospital, I'm going to send something. They're going to tell you this, that way, you know, they're like, I can't say I've ever done that with my kids, but I also treat my kids a lot differently than I was treated. And I, I
1: said, good or bad, I, it's a little bit of both. Yeah,
0: and you know, some of it's 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 where I'm at. Not that I live in an unsafe neighborhood. Some of it is I think we see so much stuff that we didn't see in our generation because information is so accessible. Yeah, um, it, it's you know also a little bit of I've seen and done a lot overseas that makes me a little bit more concerned or a little bit more on edge, and I sometimes can take that out on my kids. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, uh, my daughter told me today I was taking her and my my son to basketball camp, and she uh, um, we were listening to like some eighties music, and she's like, I would have liked to. Have, so she watched Stranger Things. So that's her like connection to the eighties. Yeah. She's like, I would have liked to have grown up in the eighties and been a teenager in the nineties, and like it was fucking great. Yeah, like uh, like I I appreciate that you guys have these phones and like the a- access to the internet and this, but I'm like, you realize that like current events. Happened and my dad read about them in the newspaper and right. told us about them. Yep. Or it might be on the cover of Time Magazine. I was like, you know, and then we actually, people had to watch the news. And, right. you know, I mean, like now, now it's, it's instant. It, well, it's instant yeah. and it's, it, it's almost too much. It is. And, uh, you know, and then the other one, um, and I'm sure you know way more about this, is disinformation campaigns yeah. and the, how you unstate, you know, uh, create instability, yeah. um, which is... You know, I mean, that's a classic move by the U.S. government. I mean, We've been destabilizing countries for a long time.
0: Not just us. Right. And it's happening. And
1: I I mean, I mean, look look at the information where it's happening in the Ukraine and Russia.
0: Yeah. You don't know what to believe. No. And from an educated position, you don't know what to believe. So what from an uneducated position? What do you do? Well,
1: uh, like for you, uh, tier one operator, you know, 18 years, um, you know, I mean, you know, the uh, tip of the spear is as far as you can go and you're looking at it and you're like yeah i don't no clue uh, yeah <laughs> no idea <laughs> it's crazy and and the, yeah. i i remember um god i, I think it was uh, uh namchansky you know, manufacturing consent the idea that dis, you know a different disinformation campaign is successful when intelligent people don't know what right. to believe yeah. so it's not just like convincing the the morons of something that yeah. is not true. It's when yeah. intelligent people that have the ability to, you know, look through a situation and do critical thinking, do not know what to believe yeah. and they don't know what's right or wrong. And they're just kind of doubting a little bit of everything. That's when you know that a disinformation yeah. campaign has actually been successful. And it's only going to get worse. And now we get AI to, to make it even better. Right. So
0: I, I don't know. I don't uh, know what you the said answer AI, is. I want to yeah. puke. My oh, I know. I know. I mean, it's because uh,
1: like the fact that like, they can manufacture. I mean, they can put words. I mean, I saw the deal where they were, uh, um, they, t- they took Biden and like basically put a speech together and had him out there. And it wasn't yeah. even, I'm like, oh my
0: God, dude. Did you see the one where they, uh, it, uh, it was an AI video of a woman's daughter saying that she was kidnapped and calling. It was just a voice. And they sent it to the mother. And it was an extortion plot. So they had AI generated, help me, mom. They've got me. You need to give them money. And she was fine the whole time so i don't know where this goes and certainly there's a need for it on many levels but how do we control this it, it, and especially with the
1: the next election coming up because that's going to be a shit show anyway yeah it's tough it's tough so you you've decided uh you've decided to tackle one of the most interesting communities for me um because uh you know like there's uh, you know, like growing up in LA, protect and serve was on every car. And then all of a sudden, you know, there was, a, I don't know if you remember, there was a Supreme Court decision where, you know, uh, I think it was a couple of gals ended up, there was a home invasion. Um, they were taken hostage, they were assaulted, the whole deal. And it was over the course of days, they called 911. 911 never showed up. They put signs in the deal, And they basically went and sued, you know, the police. And the Supreme Court basically decided that the job of law enforcement is not to protect and serve. is to investigate and arrest. And so at that point, that was a pretty interesting kind of realization for me because you think like something bad's happened, I got to call the police. Uh, That's not their function to be your personal protector. Their function is to investigate crimes and make arrests. So with that being said, I've kind of took it upon myself to realize that like, okay, nobody's coming to protect you, that you have to be your own, you know, like first line. But then you have another you know, and, and I, uh, most of the cops that I've spoken with, they don't really believe that. They were like, Correct. you know what, I'm taking this job to work, and we've worked with law enforcement for a number of years, but there's a community that's under budgeted, under trained. Um, you know, is, right now, yeah, big time. You know, and then uh, you know, and they're under attack, yeah. and the big issue, and, and I remember seeing, uh, God, it might have been was it a Time magazine? But it was like, you know, the uh, and it was a negative article written, like the militarization of law enforcement. That, you know, there's all these different pieces of equipment that these local law enforcements are buying that are military-based vehicles and this. And they're basically creating jackboot thugs yeah. in our communities, which, uh, like, is kind of an interesting deal where, you know, and then they were showing a bunch of law enforcement wearing plate carriers. Yeah. And, these you know, we're not in Afghanistan. We're in America. Why are these guys dress like this? And I'm like, yeah, like, and so you're kind of in this, like, uh, I understand the need, but is it really needed? Do these guys have the training and this, and we're kind of in this interesting piece of like, you know, like, uh, um, are they managing communities or are they preparing for, you know, world war three coming through the door?
0: Well, we're preparing for whatever's out there.
1: And certainly we're seeing things in our country now
0: that we haven't seen before. And and I think the marathon bombing was an example of that. Nine eleven was an example of that. But even on smaller scales, we're seeing criminals that are that are doing things that resemble what we've seen downrange. Yeah. Right. So I, I am certainly and I'm and I'm very conscious about this. I am not coming in to militarize the police. No. I'm coming in to teach mindset, leadership problem solving. How do I handle stress and perform at my peak? Because that is what I did for almost two decades.
1: But uh, what you're teaching is actually completely needed. Whereas the problem is, is that you have the bean counters that just want to buy more shit.
0: Yeah. Not even buy more shit, but they want to spend money on things that are politically sensitive, but not necessarily needed. If that you're obviously the catchword right now is de-escalation. We're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on de-escalation training, but at the end of the day, what are you teaching? Right. The best way to teach de-escalation is to prepare officers to be comfortable in situations, so they don't, you know, right off the bat, they redline and they go to their weapon. Yeah. Right. If you allow them to work better under stress by training under stress, you build a natural uh, de-escalation process into your your, your service. But they want to bring in therapists and all this stuff, and not they, some, some, yeah, well, sure. the, the
1: proverbial day, Correct. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and it's it's not really what's needed. The officers know that that's not what's needed. And what they fail to account for is, is there is a, a bad guy with a gun that doesn't necessarily give a shit about your de escalation technique hmm. because you can do everything correct and that person still will have to get shot. Because nothing you can do is going to stop them from whatever behavior it is that they're doing. So I think that the biggest problem we face right now is that the general public doesn't realize the capability of law enforcement. They see stuff on TV. They see stuff in the movies. They see, uh, you know, one-off events that the officers performed poorly and someone died. But they don't realize that, well, they perform that way because that's how they were trained.
1: Yeah. The, well, the the one was down in, um, uh, was it? Um, here in Texas recently, San Antonio. Yeah, it was with San a Antonio. Um, was it was it Bernie. Um, no, Uvalde. I'm sorry. Oh yeah, Uvalde. Yeah, right. and um, you know those guys were they pretty were tapped.
0: B- they didn't know what to do. Um, overwhelmed by events. Right, that's what we'll call it. But, and and I'm very critical of law enforcement. I said this with really I said critical of law enforcement, but very defensive of police. Um, as individuals because I think for the most part they perform under pressure and when I look at a situation like Evaldi it's terrible um, it, 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 I don't know how you don't go in I don't know how but I look at it from a technical expert and I see it and I see the confusion and I see the, the lack of leadership and the lack of decision making in the inaction paralysis by analysis we call it in, in the military and mm-hmm. I can tell you they've half of them had active shooter training Right. And I can tell you right now that the active shooter training certainly wasn't enough because there are so many things that could have been identified in training that didn't get identified until the actual event. And, and, you know, again, I go back to I can't teach you to be a SEAL in a week, but I can identify the problems in your training and help you build a program that you can use to fix them because you need to train all the time. We talked about yeah. it with jujitsu and it's not a one time thing. You can't train for 40 hours a year and expect to be proficient, especially when you're training every aspect of your job in that 40 hours, not just
1: critical incident response. What about like physical readiness? Kind of similar to you, like the people that tend to come to us are more like the SWAT type guys Mm -hmm. who realize like, hey, I'm going to have to, you know, there's a SWAT test. I got to carry something heavy. I got to do this and this. And so there's kind of these like series of tests that they have to overcome that require uh, a level of physicality that's pretty high. Whereas for the average, you know, flat foot beat Walker, you know, the guy that's you know running a patrol car, he's probably going to be sitting on his ass for like 80% of his entire yeah. uh, time he's out in the field. And then he gets out of a car and maybe walks up and he does this. And like, you know, it's not as if he's in a situation where like a physical culture is requiring him to Like requiring him to do his job until he is, until he is. And, uh, you know, we were down (laughs) in, um, you know, uh, um, Artesia, New Mexico at Flexi, you know, and we've also gone out into you know Georgia and gone out and worked with the guys at Flexi out there as well. And like, you know, they do a really good job of like, you know, putting these guys into, you know, fight prep and preparing them in Mm -hmm. this, but how many people take that and realize like, you know, I got to be in shape because there might be something that requires it opposed from guys. eh, It'll never happen to me.
0: Yeah, it's a cultural thing, right? But you're talking a culture of almost 800,000 people. and
1: Is is that the number of law yeah, enforcement? about, in about 800
0: grand in the U.S. right now. Wow. It's, it's a lot, and they're undermanned. Well, I mean, and, there's
1: a million people in the Army. I think there's 3 million in all of yeah. the armed forces. So, I mean, it's less than 1% of this country. So, you're talking about, like, what's that? About half a percent of this country is in law yeah. enforcement?
0: But the culture in law and the military is similar. Law yeah. enforcement and military are very similar, right? Not everybody is in shape. You have your special operations that seem to prioritize it, just like your swap teams. But there's definitely, from what I've seen, a, a, a it's becoming more of a conversation. But you have people that work 60, 70 hours a week, have families, and and the overtime is how they make money, right? Sure. Or because they're undermanned and they're picking up the slack. And then you want them to train whatever it is on their downtime because they don't have the time to do it when they're working. It is a mental health as well as a physical health crisis in law enforcement right now. Uh, It's, and we see that right in in our jobs where we're downrange and we're expected to be at peak performance. And I said it earlier, there wasn't a point in my career where I wasn't hurt or recovering from some kind of injury and working the hours that we're working and then expected to do stuff on my downtime. Um, And it's like, okay, Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna kind of be selective of what I do. I can't do it all. Sure. So again, I'm protective of police officers. I do think on the physical mental health side, they need help, but there also has to be concessions from from leadership that allow them to do that, and they're not funding people like you to come in and teach them how to be healthier and, and some places are you know and there's groups o2x i don't know if you know them um mm-hmm. like that are they're doing it a lot with the fire department and they saw how well it worked with the fire yeah. department that now law enforcement's like oh okay
1: well uh we've had uh, a few different people from law are from uh the fire departments and yeah. kind of the fire service and like the um the biggest issue they run into is drugs and alcohol yeah. you know uh, having to deal with like suicides and this you know and uh we had um uh Got her name's Annette, and I can't remember her last name. Uh, She came on, and she kind of that's her whole deal is working with these firemen because they have to go out and see like the most awful things in the world. You know, family dies and this, and then they have to go back and process this trauma and go back to their own families. And you know, drugs and alcohol and you know, coping mechanisms and suicide is so high, you know. And you're like, you know, you get into this job to want to go help people, and next thing you know, it eats you up. But uh, the in the, uh, we've been real fortunate, and especially in our training program, especially our One Hammer, which we actually developed mm-hmm. for the US military when we were doing our contractor beats. I was talking about a bunch of LEO guys are on that, but it always feels that, like, whenever I get in and talk to them on our you know servers and our yeah. Discord, most of them are in this kind of like, hey, I'm going to SWAT and I have this need yep. for it. And uh, it's just, I mean, there's a certain type of personality and like, those aren't the people we need to be worried about. Right. I mean, like you said, it's the, uh, you know, the guy in the patrol car who happens to be just driving by when the, you know, when the 911 call comes in, like, that's the guy you need ready. And like, how do you build that culture? Especially when you have, you know, what just happened in the last couple of years where all these, I'm going to use a profanity, fucking idiots, uh, you know, trying to defund the police, because it doesn't fit within their social agenda, right? You know, and this idea and all, and all the fabrication of systemic rate—I mean, it's, it's fucking bullshit. It is, you know. Um, it's uh, and then all of a sudden they wonder why crime goes up. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, there's a, a deterrent a for one to
0: one ratio, right? Yeah. yeah, and
1: and bad guys are smart. Yeah, you know, if all of a sudden they're like, yeah, defund the mill, defund yeah. the police, you know, why it makes being a scumbag criminal a lot easier. Yeah, and, and we're seeing it firsthand, and and we we're turning
0: and you kind of touched on it earlier, we're becoming passive policers, right? We're waiting for things to happen to respond vice trying to figure it out before it happens and prevent it. And usually that means someone gets hurt, someone you know, loses valuables or whatever. It, it makes officers not be able to do their job effectively. And the community suffer. And, yeah. and that's what I'm about, I'm about community safety.
1: Well, I mean, uh, I had like, um, what was it? it was uh, when um, Giuliani was in New York yeah. and he had, what was it like the bump and frisk or- yeah, uh, stop and search. Yeah, stop and search. I mean, the amount of guns that yeah. they took off of people was astronomical yeah. and it made New York a safe place. I mean, it was, uh, you know, and then I, like, I I saw a whole deal where they were like, oh, you know, it was racial profiling. They went through it. Yeah. And then when you look at the numbers of guns that they took and how it affected crime, I'm like, um, uh, you know, like you guys are are claiming all this. But at the end of the day, like if people are safer and you're getting guns off the street that shouldn't be there, like I don't really care how people feel about it. Disinformation, like, right? It's, well, in a way it is the Information yeah.
0: com- campaign, you get people on your side, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. You know what they say, right? If you complain loud enough, things are going to change. And and that's kind of what we're seeing or what we're seeing, right?
1: And until the crime rate started to spike and and hopefully. So, so uh, what's like a, uh, I mean, you have an interesting uh, position because your hand is kind of on the pulse through your 501c3 yeah. community first. Um is there, uh, you know, because there was this kind of big move in terms of defund the police. And now mm-hmm. all of a sudden there's kind of a move because everything just swings this way. It does. And then it swings back this where all of yeah. a sudden now these people that were screaming about defund the police, their cars are getting broken into their you know, right. home invasions and this. And now all of a sudden we need to bring the, the police back. But what's hard about that is there, uh, I mean, probably a ton of police um, and probably able-bodied law enforcement have just gone and found new jobs. And there's probably not a deep pool within the candidates, especially in the academies, because of the way, you know, the negative perception of law enforcement in this country.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Recruiting has taken a huge hit. And and the quality of candidates, you know, I guess we're going to find out how how much it changes. I, I think it. I think the second and third over effects are going to speak volumes about how much that actually affected the law enforcement community, the the, the campaigns, because I don't think a lot of people actually defunded as much as you heard about the defund campaigns. I think funds were reallocated, taken away from things and put into other things, but not necessarily taken away, but it was enough to damage morale within the ranks where people who were at retirement age, instead of staying in and giving back some of their experience are now like, well, no, I'm going to get out. Or people who are thinking about coming into law enforcement, which was big in in blue collar cities like Boston or Chicago, New York, well, you know, I can get the same benefits by being a fireman. Generational law enforcement now don't want to be in that community. They want to be in, in, in the fire department,
1: right? So. Huge. Well, mass. yeah, they got, uh, days off. They got, uh, chili cookouts yeah. every single day. They got yeah. like those model- them. Well, yeah, yeah, they got those calendars. so They get yeah. to take shirtless. Oh <laughs>
0: man, those are great, right? <laughs>
1: yeah. I always, uh, uh, one of my buddies in high school was a, a fire chief and I'm like, hey, I was supposed to bust his balls about like, you know, they have like cooking stuff. And yeah. so it's just kind of this ongoing joke about chili cookoffs. But I mean, it's, yeah. it's kind of an interesting piece that, yeah. um, you know, they're like firemen are viewed very, uh positively but yeah law enforcement's yeah. got this kind of negative tinge and um you know uh the um, you know i mean I, I i guess like thinking back like where, where did it all start you know and it probably started with a camp corner with rodney yeah uh, rodney, rodney king, king. You know, yep. and um, you know, like those dudes are, you know, billy club that dude on this, and they also didn't show the high speed chase, and you know, not that the you know what happened to him is justified, but like, yeah. you know, the dude's on PCP and is you know driving 100 miles through residential neighborhoods, right. you know, fights the officers, and the camera just happens to come on as they're two handed billy clubbing him, and um, you know,
0: yeah, yeah and but it, and not to defend either side of the story, right? And I, I from- oh yeah,
1: no, it's it it's an unf- I mean it. It was really the first time, I mean, you know, the brutality and, and that, and I, I grew up in LA when that Rodney yeah. King thing went down and the whole city the riots, burned in yeah. this, but it just goes to show you how powerful, Absolutely. you know, just you, turning it, on you, the camera at this yeah. moment.
0: Yeah. And, and it's weaponized almost like the internet, the social media has become weaponized, you know, both anti and pro police in, in many ways. But I, the way that I look at it, it in obviously I'm going to defend law enforcement, you know, they. They're out there doing a job and they need our support to Dude, do it. Right? I, I, I
1: completely agree. Like, uh, people that want to don the uniform and go out and Heroes. like, that's their deal. Like, yeah. I think we, we owe them, uh, as much support as we can. Absolutely.
0: And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, right? Is, is if they can't afford to get better, I'm going to pay for it and help them get better.
1: How are you fundraising? Uh, I, I do. Obviously, because I I have a cancer charity, uh, Wade's Army. It's five hundred one c three. How hard we've, is that, right? We've raised uh, over the last ten years, like uh, excess of seven figures. That's great. Yeah, so it, we've it's one of the harder things grand.
0: that I've ever done is fundraising, and I just I've been fortunate to have a really supportive network uh, of people up in Massachusetts. Um, I don't know if you've heard of. Uh, there's you know, obviously born primitive. I just started working with those guys. They're yeah. their fitness apparel company in Virginia Beach started by a seal. Dude, I I have some of their gear. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So they're coming out with a tactical line in September. So nice. I'm working with them to to really get some exposure and, and to help vet their gear and and get it out to people that need it. Um and, and there's a couple other corporations up in the Massachusetts area and a lot of individuals who see the need. And as soon as I pitch them the process, they they're on board. And so a lot of private donorship, which makes me sustainable. It's not my long-term play. I need federal money to be able to do that. I need corporate sponsorships. I need, I need Walmart, Target, grocery stores, the places where these critical incidents are happening to jump on board and, and be a corporate sponsor because they see the value in community safety by improving the response of, of the people that police the communities. Sure. Um, but right now, the majority of what we've gotten has been through private donors. Um, fundraisers, the operator for a day, bringing people out to ranges, letting them shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, in December, Army Navy games at Gillette. So mm-hmm. we've we've got um, Team Impact. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they they take a um, they take disabled children with with you know, life changing disabilities, and they draft them to a college program. And they become a teammate of whatever it doesn't have to be football or any sport yeah and they follow the team for a couple of years two years and they just they are included by the players and in, in the teams and the, the communities and they become you know local heroes and, and it's something they would never have otherwise we came up with this plan to draft a kid on army draft a kid on navy and we will my charity will will follow them and support them throughout the season and it'll culminate at an event at the Army Navy game up in uh, up in New
1: England. Oh by
0: And it's gonna be really cool. We've we've got support from the craft family. We've got 50 tickets that we're auctioning off. So if if you know anyone that wants to go and hang out with us and, and be a part of it, um we're we're gonna start doing the auction here soon. Um we'll auction off half and then the other half are gonna to go to veterans um and first responders to be able to be part of the the group. Nice and yeah, so there's there's we're working the fundraising piece. The future is federal funding to be able to do that. We just need to establish ourselves and, and show that what we're doing is actually making a difference, which mm-hmm. is which is hard because it's not necessarily quantitative, right? You, you would need someone you train to be in, in a situation where they can show that what they've done has changed. Mm-hmm. I can tell you right now, the morale changes when people go through the training. The feeling of, of accomplishment and the ability to know that if I needed to do something, it's there to know that my chain of command supports me because they're bringing in people like this to help me get better at my job.
1: What the, what's the, like, um, well, I, what I was gonna ask you, kind of take me through the training, but like, you know, when you come in, obviously with your resume and you meet law enforcement, are they like, shit, like these are legit cats?
0: Yeah, it, it's one of those things where your reputation precedes you, right? Yeah. You, you, I have a resume that, for that kind of training, I don't need to go show you that I can do it because I never would have gotten to that spot yep. if I couldn't do it,
1: right? So there is a level of... So you have to come in with you like you tried it on your chest and you're like... Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and, <laughs> yeah, pretty much, right? Yeah, we talked about that earlier. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> um, I, And it's funny when they announce a training in certain places, everybody wants to do it. So yeah. it's unlike a lot of training where we talked about being overworked and underpaid and, and underappreciated and now you're like hey do you want to do this in your downtime and nobody wants to do it but now you you have people coming in that you would never be able to work with in your career unless you're a big city SWAT team or a federal agent and, and you're getting free training and Learning some of the fundamentals that should be taught in the academy that you didn't get taught because it doesn't get prioritized.
1: So, what, uh, like, take me through, like, like what, ex- like, what specifically? I mean, you talked about de escalation, but are you teaching them, like, um, like weapons proficiency, how to shoot? It, even it, that and It
0: depends on the department. So, typically, what we'll do is when we get a an inquiry from a department, I'll, I'll get on the phone. I, I ask to see their SOPs or TTPs to kind of find out what they're doing right now. I do not have my own SOPs or TTPs that I teach because I don't think a week is enough time for them to learn my stuff, right? Yeah. So I want to come in and take what they're already using, identify a lot of what they're using is usually five to 10 or more years old. It's dated because that's what they've had access to throughout their, their time and just bring it up to date. And that's before I even come in and train them, we can identify some of that stuff. And then we talk about, well, what are your shortfalls? Where do you think your guys need help? But at the end of the day, until I see them in action, I can't really tell. Mm. So if I'm able to, I like to go watch them do training without me. And then we come back and we develop a plan. Okay, here's where I think you need help. And usually 99.9% of the time, it's just basic fundamentals. Mm. Like how do you enter a room where you know there's a
1: shooter on the other side of the door? Never been taught that. So no dynamic entries. Let's kick the door off the hinges and fall right in the room. I mean, yeah, yeah, right. Just it's, <laughs> it's,
0: it's, it's stand in a doorway and exchange fire with somebody. Yeah, right? It, yeah. It's like just know, like the movies. Just like the movies. Yeah. 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 And I mean, they're not. Obviously, they're not going explosive. They're not doing any of the stuff. In many ways, their job is so much harder than ours. Yeah. And to think that they're doing it with at most a week of training and maybe ten hours, fifteen hours a year of firearms proficiency.
1: And if they make a mistake, they get in jail. Yeah, they get thrown in jail yeah. or they get burned burned at the stake of right. public opinion.
0: I, I have this analogy that I like to use because a lot of people don't understand the law enforcement military analogy. But when you talk sports, people understand it. Yeah. So, you know, football, take, take take a basketball player or a baseball player and tell them, hey, I'm going to teach you how to throw football. So you grab an athlete, let's say a basketball player, you bring them in and then you grab another basketball player that's already been through your training and you have them teach that basketball player. How to throw a football. And you, you have all these videos of all the greats, Tom Brady, Joe Montana, Dan Marinos. This is how they do it. And then you grab some other random people and he's like, all right, now go throw to that guy and you teach him how to throw to other basketball players. And then on, you know, the fourth day, you run them through this, a couple of plays over and over. So they memorize those plays and you have the defenses, people that have never played football or basketball. And then on Friday, you test them doing the same plays that you rehearsed the whole day. And at the end of the week, you give him a piece of paper and sign them off and said, hey, guess what? You're a quarterback. Well done. Good job. Now go back and play basketball. And then three years later, you call them up and say, hey, I need you here right now. Tom Brady's hurt. You're starting in the Super Bowl. But I don't know how to play football. No, it says right here, <laughs> yeah, you're, no, you're a quarterback. You
1: yeah. Oh, my God.
0: That's what they're doing. They're putting officers with a week of training into tier one Navy SEAL operations and then crucifying when they fail. It's unbelievable crazy right crazy it's insulting to me to think that they can make someone proficient in in a life or death situation with a week of training when i spent a whole career trying
1: trying to do it and what's the uh you know what's the complaint budgeting
0: usually budgeting yeah, yeah. and in time and so
1: we don't have time we don't have the budget to train them and and
0: they don't when you when you have a job where you learn most of what you do a, in the academy but then on the job right 40 hours a year that's that's the requirement in most places for in service training wow. and, and that's everything not just tactical, typically not tactical at all. So that's
1: like five eight-hour days. Yeah. So So like they do like a exactly. one eight-hour day. They just have to do five of those a year. Correct. And they do what? Like shoot like two quals?
0: A, shooting is, yeah, go there and just make sure your proficiency is good and shoot. No,
1: yeah. I, I dude, I, yeah. I um when uh when I was in Orange County, uh, we would go out to Rahagi's to go out and shoot. I don't know if you've ever been out there. It's out in the no. Empire. And no. they, we used to have their quals. And we'd always go watch and kind of laugh a little bit at like uh, the different departments coming out and doing their quals. I think it was like, I mean, it was like, what, like 50 rounds? Yeah, it's it's not a lot. No, and it's 50 rounds. And the interesting if that, right? Yeah, I, I think yeah. it was 50 rounds and they had to call maybe once or twice a year. And most of the guys, like that was the only rounds they shot. Yeah. So they might like go out and like pre-practice like the day before and shoot like a few rounds. But like, you know, like, hey, I shot 100 this year. Like That's yeah. it. Yep. Yeah. I'm good. And, uh, and when I want to ask them, I, I remember going like, could you guys shoot more? And they're like, well, to some extent you can. And there's some other guys that shoot, but then you yeah. got to start paying for your own ammo. Yeah.
0: And go do it on your own time.
1: Yeah. And go do it on your own time.
0: And it, it, it differs. There, there's definitely some places. And actually, um, where was it? Uh, some of the places in Texas I've worked that were really good about it. Right. So you always have your right and left yeah. flank where, you know, I can only talk about the the averages. Um, there are places that do it a lot better than other places, and there are places that do it a lot worse than other places. And a lot of that has to do with budget. A lot of it has to do with time because you don't want to pay overtime or do things after you just worked a 60, 70 hour week to have to go do that on your own time.
1: Do you think um, that, I and mean, you know, I mean, obviously, you being from Massachusetts is just kind mm-hmm. of fortuitous in that way, but do you believe that the you know, the Boston City bombing? Um, You know, obviously bringing Boston into the kind of the limelight with this and then, you know, kind of seeing the way that, Mm -hmm. you know, they were obviously tracking these guys. But then how they went and, you know, I watched the whole, uh, what was it, like uh, Netflix or, you know, whatever the documentary. And then they, you know, ended up kind of cornering these dudes and the whole deal. Um, Do you think that that kind of put a spotlight on? Because, I mean, if you think about like Boston kind of similar to maybe Chicago, like, you know, Boston police, New York PD. I mean. These are kind of these, uh, more, like you said, multi-generation type yeah. places. Like uh, putting it there, and really, if that uh, maybe assessing that these individuals needed something more after that bombing, one hundred percent. And but
0: I think they knew that before. And again, not calling out the officers, but it, it, one of the big things that I noticed from, and because I we've been guilty about this in Tier One special operations is we don't integrate with other units. Right. And that was a big thing at 9 11 that came out. Intelligence right. services not talking to each other. Yeah. But you watch that documentary and you see the rift still to this day between the, the leaders from city, state, um, federal government, and how the time they spent arguing over who's in charge. How were we doing this? This is all stuff that can be identified with proper training and, and integration between units. And I know I get the the state, city, federal not wanting to do stuff together or or that logistically it's difficult to do but if you are a city here and a city here and you're not training together you're setting yourself up for failure Uh right and it doesn't happen and that was our problem in the military like we would never go work with the army we would never go work with other SEAL teams we just didn't because we we felt like we have our little mission and, and that's it and then there would be an operation that involved everybody and it became a lot more difficult to get things done
1: because you've never
0: integrated before. Yeah,
1: because I guess you guys have a different set of SOPs Correct. than these guys. Correct,
0: but it, when you go back to fundamentals, the fundamentals should be same across the board for situations where you have to integrate with other people. So when I go to you know Department A and Department B that are next door to each other and their fundamentals are different or there are no fundamentals, that's a problem. Hmm. But it's not about teaching the officers that, it's about showing people in the decision-making spaces like hey this is why this is bad here's an example bombing of what can happen like it's it's amazing nobody was killed in boston with, with you know you saw the bullets in the in the houses right yeah it, it's that it's not the officer's fault i hate to say it right but you are so pegged that you are doing things out of fear like how many times the police train having pipe bombs thrown at them none And now you're in a real world situation where people are throwing pipe bombs at you and shooting at you and you don't really know where they are and you're shooting somewhat blindly, right? That's, that's the kind of stuff we need to identify in training to kind of teach out of Um, the fear response to get
1: people comfortable in stress, to be able to perform better and make sounder decisions. How long do you think it takes? Like, um, you know, we, you kept talking about like 40 hours, you know, that these guys have to do with training. Like what would be the investment for law enforcement? Like, you know, based upon, I mean, uh, like I said, like, you're not going to take somebody in a week and make them a seal. It's a career. Like how, like, I guess what I'm asking is like, okay, so they come out of the Academy. Yeah. Um, you know, they're like day one, like how long or how much exposure would it take to make these individuals like moderately proficient? Uh, you know,
0: it, it, I I am from the camp that I never stopped working on my profession. And right now, law enforcement is the only one responding to these critical incidents. That's it. The military isn't operating in the U.S. right, so we're yeah. not doing it. If but, you're uh, going to ask, was it
1: Posi comitatus Yes. If you're going to ask right? if
0: you're going to ask them to do that, then they need to be proficient at it. So. I kind of look at it differently. I think, I think law enforcement should be manned enough that they train a week, a month. And if you had a, a fundamentals course in the academy standardized across the country that you learn the basics of a tactical response to an active shooter or any kind of critical incident, something that wouldn't necess- necessitate a SWAT team response, right? Mm-hmm. Because 90 something percent of active shooters are done before SWAT gets there, which it's patrol officers. Yeah. And then you have a rotation of officers where they work three weeks, they train one week Mm -hmm. every month. And it doesn't all have to be tactical training. Ours is we train for 12 months to work for four months or we train for 18 months to work for six months. 40 hours for 12 months. That's a problem. Yeah. So a lot of what I'm doing is trying to, you know, I talked about...
1: Like re-educating?
0: Re-educating. Like the decision makers? Exactly. Advocating the general public what the response is going to be is, is the norm like that is how most officers the level to which they are trained it doesn't mean that's going to happen every time but i'm not surprised when it does because they're not taught any differently mm. so i mean nashville they had no active shooter training and they went in and did a great job you know they still could do better right they still need to train and do yeah. better but it was just they had prior military guys who were aggressive and and did a great job of of motivating and and being deliberate and going to the sound of gunfire yeah right so so wait though uh
1: Nashville had no active shooter I, training. I don't
0: I don't know that firsthand wow. this is what I was told yeah. um you know they had a couple of military guys just happened to be in the right place at the right time yeah but at the end of the day you, you're kind of relying on how bad the shooter is right the, the lack of skill of the shooter and that your minimal skill was better than their no skill so it's we we need to have a sustained program of education for law enforcement to be able to respond to these critical incidents and the benefit of that is that all trickles down into the other parts of their job where they can perform better yeah right because you're used to working at that high level of stress Yeah. Or training.
1: And or just like a high physical readiness. Yes. Like, I mean, that's the one thing that we've seen with the the SEAL teams that like when guys are physically fit and they're strong, they seem to be able to do their jobs better. Shocker, Right.
0: right? And that affects mental health too, right? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, there's definitely, um, I, uh, I was actually telling my wife this the other day. So um, my dad passed away a couple years ago uh, of of cancer. And uh, my dad was super smart and Mm -hmm. was kind of had like an ego uh, about being smart and was super condescending, which I always (laughs) joke with with most people where I'm like, you didn't grow up with a really smart, condescending father. That's why you probably don't have a quick wit. Uh, But my dad was super sharp. And I remember um, I didn't have like the – research or just the information when it was alive like i do today that there's a direct correlation between like you know your brain intelligence yeah. and health and your physical readiness and just how strong you are in this i mean it's like a one for one yeah like if you got a big aerobic base i mean you think about mitochondrial density you think about motor you i mean all these things play in and um you know especially with uh, with brain health yeah. you know if you want to starve off uh, alzheimer's and this i mean keeping you know body fat low body fat's extremely oxidative muscles extremely insulin sensitive i mm-hmm. mean if you want to your brain be in good shape and lift weights and train and, yeah. and be proficient you know learn new skills this and like problems say anything about drinking whiskey is that is that on our list no right. no I, I just think okay. that uh you got to be able to drink whiskey because then yeah. uh what, what, you know uh, one funny thing my dad always joked is uh um and I think he might've stolen this from Dean Martin, but I was attributed to him. he's like, man, I never understand people that don't drink. Like that's the best they're going to feel all day when they wake <laughs> up. Like, I don't want that. Yeah. But, uh, I like, I remember when I told him I wanted to lift weights and do all this. He's like, Idiots do that stuff. It's kind yeah. of 10 over and over again. And he never understood like why yeah. I wanted to lift weights and train. And then when I got drafted to the NFL, I bought him a Porsche. And I remember I slipped the keys over and I was like, this is what weight training did for me, <laughs> motherfucker. He's like, yeah, I should have listened. <laughs> but uh, um, I like, but now there's so much uh, like interesting research. And it's, yeah. it's not only just anecdotal, but it's down that like, you know, your ability to cognitively function and, you know, the higher level of physical readiness that you have, it means that you can handle so much more. Yep. And uh, the fact that, you know, they've reduced physical standards, the PT tests, all these others. And like, you know, I mean, you know, like, uh, you know, the, <sighs> you know, the joke about out, out of shape mm-hmm. cops eating donuts, you yeah. know, is a funny stereotype. And I know people take offense to it, but it's because it's more accurate than not. Right. You know? It, it, and again,
0: that, the military as well. We're, yeah. we're not the only ones. And then obviously the general public. It's We're an unhealthy country right now. Yeah. And I, I would like to think that that's changing with with the education that we're getting from, you know, hopefully communities like mine where we're, we're, we're kind of test dummies for some of this physical fitness and readiness and how it affects performance and and recover recovering from injury and, and being able to, to provide max effort and uh, brain health and how brain health uh, affects your body and your mind. It's, man, I, I hope what you're doing and, and what I'm doing can affect just the general population and,
1: and I, it's a long uh, road. Um, you know, uh, and I know this sounds, this is kind of interesting, but. Um, um, the stuff that we do isn't for everybody. I wish it was. I agree. And what we've done at Power Athlete is we've yeah. carved out a good community of like-minded individuals. And like, you know, within like, uh you know, whether it be like within our Discord or, you know, within like mm-hmm. the team feeds and this, it's like a lot of really like-minded individuals that like, if they all got together, we'd have a hell of a party because everybody yeah. would want to eat some steaks. They probably want to have some yeah. drinks. They probably want to talk some shit. And like, even going through like asking people like, hey, like how'd you get into training? Or, yeah. you know, let's say if you were training like fight stuff where it came from And um, it's pretty interesting, though, the guys that are law enforcement, a lot of ex-military. Hey, I got into this in the military and this, and now I'm into law enforcement. So it's pretty, like, I feel better for law enforcement that, like, you know, a lot of these guys are, you know, former, you know, door kickers or, you know, at least went outside, you know, went in harm's way outside the wire. And now they're in this and they're trying to use these skills for, you know, to help, I guess, within the population and maybe that. Pool of individuals ends up kind of infecting, and I don't mean in a bad way, but just like influencing, influencing you, go, yeah. you know, uh, a culture, like a physical culture of readiness, so that these individuals are going in. Because, uh I mean, like just the active shooter stuff that's happened recently. um Like when you look at it, you're like, God damn! I yeah. mean, the uh, I was thinking about the uh, was it the Parkland shooter, the guy that went into the uh, movie theater. Yeah, was I, that the Parkland deal? I don't. Yeah, it's and, funny uh, when
0: we get to a point where there's so many of them. Oh my god, it's hard to keep track of which well, of which. And, yeah.
1: and the guy didn't know how to how to how to clear a malfunction. Yeah, and like he was like, I mean, you know, and he was like, a, what that hundred round man drum, yeah. which is, you know are complete dog shit. because they yeah. jam." Yeah. But the thing, like, which was probably the saving grace that the guy was yeah. such a fucking dipshit with the guns that he bought like the least effective, you know, drum that had you know a stovepipe. Yep. And uh, didn't know how to clear it. I mean, like it's just, uh, and this is. This is something I, I like go back and forth on. And so when I um, I had a concealed weapons permit in California, yeah. which I was like one of like 10 people, right? right? So there, there, there was like a one-week deal where in Orange County they uh, uh, they filed a lawsuit against them. And like it like they got a favorable decision. And it took them like a week to file the uh, injunction against it. So, so anybody they had, who got in, in that yeah, one Yeah, week? and mine, mine happened to be in the pool. So all of a sudden I got okayed. Nice. And then, like, the cops showed up in my house the next day to, like, do, like, a verification, <laughs> yeah. right? And I'm like, holy shit, I'm going to get this thing. But then when I went down to actually shoot the qual, there was a, a dude in there who had wow. zero gun experience that figured out, like, he just applied and figured out, like, this would be his entrance into getting, like, yeah. a, a gun. So we go shoot the qual. And um, – the guy had uh, like you know like so like it was like just like a NRA I think he be shot like fifty rounds right it was like you know two mm-hmm. from seven and this you go back so the guy goes to draw his pistol uh, do we shoot I think we could shoot from pistol from conceal I, I forgot how it went the guy was just taking this pulls the trigger right gun doesn't go off and uh, turns to the instructor oh man like this and does. Basically muzzle sweeps all of us yeah. and the instructor and the instructor standing behind him, like two hand jacks him. And you know, they have like the, yep. um, what are like dividers? The bol- yeah, dividers, the standards, whatever it is, like jacks the old man into it. And the guy like goes down, you know, like fucking this. And, uh, I had shot like four rounds, you know, and, um, that basically cancels the whole thing because this guy, like, you know, the fucking gun jams, he yeah. muzzle sweeps this dude, the whole thing. We go in and then they put us back in the room and, like, you know, basically tear that guy's shit up and kick him out. Then we had to go back in and finish the qual. They almost canceled the whole class. But, like, then they asked me when I got done um, what I thought, like, of the experience. And uh, I'd always been, you know, uh, put a lot of faith into the Second Amendment, you yeah. know, and, uh, you know, the right to bear arms. And I always kind of felt that, like, it was very simply written for a reason. But after leaving there, I realized, I'm like, I, as much as I believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I think there needs to be a basic proficiency intelligence test. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you just can't hand fucking morons that can't drive a Ferrari or this and put them in harm's way. And like, you know, but then there's like this interesting slope of like, now you're creating this like, you know, okay. uh, You know, so like, I, like I'm, I'm always been a believer, like, you know, when you start regulating, we get into trouble, but. I also think that maybe a time mile test. Can you run a sub 10 minute mile or can you do 50 push push-ups, or, uh, you know, should you at least be able to like, as you go, and and this was, you know, for concealed weapons permit in California, which is fucking hard. So it's not as if they were just the average gun buyer. These people had gone through, you know, fingerprints and bedding. And there was a dude there that didn't know how to shoot and almost fucking muzzle or muzzle flashed everybody. So I, I left there having like a kind of a conflicted feeling of like, fuck man, like, I believe in the framers of our constitution and the right to bear arms, but then I also don't believe that our our forefathers ever anticipated the the individuals in this country. Yeah. I mean, because you got to think, like, uh, like those dudes could build their own homes. Like, I mean, they were uh like way yeah. different individuals than what we have today. I mean, these dudes basically came over on boats, build lives yeah. of this. I mean, you know, gave a finger to the crown and dared them to come kill them, yeah. and we're ready to fight them. So, I mean. Like, these were uh, uh, type A, very motivated, highly capable individuals that were looking to get it on.
0: Out of necessity. Out of necessity. Which we don't have right now. Yeah. Now we have
1: cell phones and this. I mean, like, I mean, the, uh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, like, this is, you know, but then you think, God, how intelligent were these dudes that they were able to write a document that's been able to govern something that they never imagined, but yet had enough wherewithal to to understand what could happen. And creating the greatest nation on in the world. Way. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, unsettling kind of tidbit here is uh, I probably lost count. Of, uh, so the number of police officers I've watched do exactly what you just explained about that guy. Just you put a little bit of stress and become completely unsafe with a weapon. And this is someone who carries a weapon for a living and is going to be potentially asked to use it. And um, my debrief point is, hey, can you stop pointing your gun at your buddy? <laughs> that's that's what we're dealing with, right?
1: And yeah. and you know you can blame. I the laugh more out of nervousness oh, because I get it. Uh, yeah. um, I, the, uh nobody expects that. Well, my um I was talking about my dad. So my dad was a uh, grew up in LA. He was um graduated college or graduated high school at like sixteen. Graduated I think like college in nineteen, and he was mm-hmm. a lawyer for basically a practicing attorney for like fifty six years and he was a da and then a criminal defense attorney and i remember he told me when i got my license he's like the single closest chance you're going to have to death and getting killed is at a traffic stop by a cop who's super nervous yeah. and undertrained he's like the amount of times that i've had to represent families and law yeah. enforcement as uh, both both sides of the deal where people have been killed at random traffic stops by nervous police he's like so when i was 16 he's like You get pulled over. I want you to turn the car off. I want you to put the dome lights on. I want you to roll the windows down. I want you to take the keys out. And I want you to basically put them on the dash, put your hands on the steering wheel. Because here's the deal. If I can get you home, we'll fight it. Right? He's like, you're not going to win anything. And he goes, all he's doing is he's asking you to appear. And your dad's a lawyer. Your job is to get away from the traffic stop alive. And uh, so ever since then, I'm always like, still to this day, I turn on the dome lights. I roll the windows down. My license and registration. He's like, don't say anything. Do you know why I pulled you over? No, sir. Um, you know, this, and if he wants to get you engaged in anything, just no, sir, hand me the ticket. I'm happy to sign it. I'll see you on that date. Yes, sir. And you know what? And he goes, these people, that get into arguments and they want to yeah. battle and this and do all the stupid shit and they, like roll the window. up. It's like fucking, yeah. like these people are insane. They're going to fucking die. And, and uh, he's like, the amount of people that get killed at traffic stops yeah. because they're fucking assholes and they could, and their job is to get away safe. And like, you know, the cops are walking up. And like, I always think from a law enforcement deal, you're walking up to a car. You don't know who the fuck this is. Yeah. You don't know what they have. You don't know if they've been drinking on drugs. They don't know if they got a hostage in the back. You're like, you know, you're just pulling them over on a routine right. traffic stop. Anything could go down. And these guys are nervous and yeah. they're undertrained, and yeah. they're overstressed and overworked and they're not in good shape.
0: Yeah. Yep, 100%. And, and ironically, most of these people who are involved in critical incidents where officer-involved shootings... It's not their first interaction with the cops. Almost all the time, any event that happens is is someone who has had multiple run-ins with law enforcement. And when I when I kind of talk to people about this, and I try not to sound insensitive, but the more interactions you have with law enforcement, the greater your chances of running into the officer who is not equipped to be in that situation.
1: Oh shit! I didn't right? even think about that.
0: And and that habit, the 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 big one is is the um, the Potter case where the female officer pulled her gun instead of her taser.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. She
0: was not equipped to be in that situation. And they went back and looked at her training and the training justified that, right? And she, she it was her fault. She, but, you know, again, you put yourself in these situations, you're running the risk of running into that person who is not qualified or competent to be put in a life or death, high stress situation. And as the, um, assailant victim, whatever you want to call them, that's perspective based. Um, you might not feel like it's a life or death situation, but when you stress that officer out, they might, right? And just because you don't feel a certain way doesn't mean they don't feel a certain way and vice versa. Uh, and, and I I see that and it's kind of why I started doing this because I can see the red line going on these officers and I can see the point where training should have kicked in and it didn't. And once they go red line, the guns come out and it becomes a different story where you revert to your basic level of training. Yeah. Which is that ten to fifteen hours of, of firearms? Because nobody don't have, ever
1: rises to the occasion. People always follow to the level of their training, which I got from the SEAL teams. Right.
0: That that quote is on my website. Yeah. Right there.
1: And I mean, we it's true do we talk about this uh, at every seminar I've ever taught? That the only way you're going to increase your proficiency is by training and elevating it, at, like yeah. at all times. Because I mean, I, and I saw this in the NFL. Like, there was never a moment where somebody came out on the field on game day then, like, all of a sudden was somebody that we didn't know them to be. Correct. Like, I, I never saw somebody be, like, a, a punker or suck sucker dude, you know, be, yep. like, dog shit in practice, and then all of a sudden show up and dun-dun-dun. Yeah. You know, we used to make even make the joke that, like, believe me, nobody was going to rip off your pads and you were going to become Superman after right. sucking at practice. Yeah. Like, the dudes that, like, were able to do it in practice and did it at a high level just went out on Sunday and did it a little bit better. mm mm-hmm. And uh, you know that's why we were always nervous with young guys. You know somebody, you yeah. know somebody who hadn't taken the reps or done all that, and we have a starter get hurt, and a young guy comes in. And you're like, I know, Jesus, I don't know yeah. how this guy's going to do. I mean, I haven't seen him do it. And then they're like, Oh, he'll be fine. I'm like, We Hopefully. haven't, yeah, we haven't seen it. Yeah. And you know, like you can't guarantee that this dude's not going to get somebody hurt. And um, man, that was a uh, um, an interesting piece. So I I came in and started as a rookie. Got hurt, yeah. and then I came back and started for the rest of my NFL career. And I wasn't a young dude after like the first game of my second year, just because I went out there and played at a high level. And I just remember there were guys that were older than me that hadn't played, and they yeah. were still considered young guys because they hadn't had the opportunity to go right. prove themselves. Yeah, especially on the line, right? We just getting your ass kicked every day, right? So much fun. Yeah. yeah. Oh, dude, I like the fact. oh every day. Yeah. It was. Uh, I miss like, the guys. That's about it. Yeah, I. I uh, Not so much a job. Um. I enjoyed the camaraderie and the training. I can't say that, like, I, I played some with some amazing dudes that I miss seeing. Yeah. Um, but, like, I think for you guys, uh, you guys did it for your teammates. Um, I did it for the violence. Yeah. Like, like, you know, that dude, like, uh, they always showed like, you know, like a random picture of a dude holding a sign. up, it's Like I'm here for the violence. Yeah. <laughs> I was just there for the violence. You. Yeah. I, I just wanted to, I whatever liked, motivates you. Right. You I, I just like play. that. I got to get paid. I, I got yeah. to lift weights and train and then I got to go out and just fucking try to beat some dude's ass yeah. for three hours. And yeah. I, I, I like the physical contact and the violence and the pain and the afflict and the fact that I got to punch and do all these yeah. things. And, um, uh, there's dudes I played with I, that, you know, if they were broken down on the side of the road, I probably would just drive by. But um, I fucking really just loved running right. out there and doing the job for the fact that I got to one-on-one fight a dude for three hours.
0: Yeah, And, and I got w- paid money to do it. I would say we're, we're probably in the same boat. I think most of the guys, if you take the war away, it's it's harder to keep them doing the job. Right? And you think about it, you, do you, would you have wanted to train all the time and never play? No. Right, So it's, it's the same thing. Yeah. And we always see that sharp drop in, in Manning when a conflict of war is over.
1: Well, I, I always joke uh, that they paid me to practice. I played the games for free. Right. Which I always thought yeah. was funny because they always paid us on like the day after. You know, like uh, we played Sunday. like mm-hmm. uh, Payday was Monday. And I always thought it was better if they had paid me before on Fridays yeah. before I'd be like, cause I told them like, yeah. I got no problem. Like the week, the meetings, all that other bullshit. That's what you pay me for the Sunday when I get to put on the game yeah. and he's going to play. That's the only thing. I'm, I yeah. mean, that's the shit I do for free. Yep.
0: Yeah. Um, it's, it's similar. It's, it's, it's a cultural thing I and mean, not that anyone's wishing for war, but we're ready for it and we want to. Well,
1: but I mean, can you imagine yeah. like, I like it never even fucking occurred to me until you said it right there. Like. And, and, relate, and you made an uh, interesting correlation that, you know, with the military, people make uh, these, you know, assumptions until you put them into sports. They're not real. Like when you said, yeah. like, I can't imagine going through training camp and going through all the practices and yeah. not being able to go out yeah. and play. I uh, So, my you know, the year I got hurt uh, was my 10th year. And I think part of the reason I pulled the ripcord and ended it was I was had this, like, kind of weird feeling. Like, what if I go back and I'm not the starter? And I yeah. got to go practice and do all those meetings and all that and just stay on the sideline. And I, I, and then I remember like when I retired in this and then I thought, thought about it, and I was like, fuck, maybe if I could have just gone and stole for one year <laughs> and sit on the sideline <laughs> yeah. and been like a good like positive dude in the locker yeah. room and help the young guys get ready, could I have done that? And uh, you know, the money obviously would have been nice, but then at the end of the day, like that's not how I made my bones and that's yeah. not who I was. So then all of a sudden, like I was never a backup. I was always, <laughs> yeah, you know. It'd be tough spirit. to watch
0: other people doing your job. Yeah, right.
1: I I can't imagine in your situation, like being in a situation where you're like, you know, I I get to train in this and I don't get to go down range. It's almost like I I just wouldn't want to be here. I wouldn't want to tarnish it. I showed
0: up to work every day with the mindset that it's it's a selection. I'm being selected every day of my career. And if I don't do my job, there's a bunch of pipe hitters behind me that want it. And they're ready to do it right. They're in the gym at six in the morning working out and, and on the range shooting and getting better because they want to do my job. And I, they can either wait till I'm done doing it and I move to my next job, or they can take it from me now because I'm not performing. Yeah. Uh, and and that is not a mindset that I see, in, in the civilian world since, since I've retired. Um. At
1: you know, obviously, you're you know, kind of tip of the spear in that. Like, um, you know, places like Dev There's almost uh and maybe it's uh, like I kind of imagine the NFL was a lot similar way where. Somebody might be younger and have a better skill set, but at the end of the day, going, running out the tunnel, they want the guy that one that's proven he's done yeah. it. And there's like a intrinsic kind of value in like this historical knowledge of like, oh, this guy, he's, he's done it when the bullets have flyed. He knows what he's doing. He has like all of this historical knowledge. Cause he's been there opposed from some young guy who might be a little fitter, maybe right. a little bit better, but like, ah, oh, this guy's more of a proven commodity.
0: This episode of Power Athlete Radio is powered by Train Heroic, the most immersive strength training app experience on the market.
1: We've built our online training business by partnering with Train Heroic and helping us deliver all of our world-class training programs like Jack Street, Field Strong, and Grindstone. To learn which Power Athlete training program best suits your goals, head to powerathletehq.com slash training. And if you're a coach looking
0: to build a business with the best tech and training, Go to trainheroic.co forward slash powerathleteHQ. And now, back to the show.
1: So, you've had this storied career, 18 years, tier one, you know, development group, um, you know, naval special warfare. You decide to get out. And, you know, what's the vision? I mean, obviously, you started the 501c3 you know working with law enforcement but you know what's the five what's the 10 year plan like how do we like what's the marker for success i mean is it to be able to go in and you know influence the 800,000 law enforcement around the world and so that they have better sops that they can take better care of themselves and if they're in active situations
0: Well, I, 100% i want to affect that community right because i think they need it and they need advocacy and they need it from people that know what they're talking about. And, and specifically when it comes to high stress, high threat, critical incidents and, and working under stress. So, uh, you know, the 5-10 year plan is is really to scale. Uh, and that is, I hate to say it, it's, it's financially dependent, right? Because there's no shortage of officers that need the help. Where we have a shortage is is of, of SEALs that are able to, to do this, right? Because there's a finite amount of SEALs um, and sponsorship. Um, whether it's corporate, federal, state, um, private, it, it doesn't matter. I need people to get on board, and and you know, find my message resonates with them and want to come in and help. Uh, I, I, I getting into this, I thought this would be a job where I would train cops all the time, and you know, ask for money a little bit of the time. And I probably spend about 90% of my time fundraising now. So you sound like a politician. Right,
1: it's crazy. Where like you get to office and then you spend the next two years trying to fundraise for the next two years.
0: It, it kind of is. And a lot of it is because people, and we've talked about this a couple of times now, people don't understand where law enforcement capability stands currently. And so a lot of advocacy on my part to help educate the policymakers, policy the decision makers and, and people who control the budget realize that what we're doing right now isn't preparing our people to protect our communities. And at the end of the day, I went to war for two decades because I wanted to protect my family and my friends and my communities. And while I was gone, law enforcement protected them for me. So now I'm coming back and I'm still service driven, which I've always been, and I want to help those people that help me and make communities safer still. And I just have a different way of doing it. So you know the way I see it is is to employ, um, and, and this is this is everything changes, right? We we got to be flexible and we kind of go the way that it, it takes us a little bit. I, I definitely have a, a vision of having seals who are getting out, preferably tier tier one, or um, you know our army tier one counterparts, going back to whatever their their hometown is, um, whatever state it is, and having them be my program manager for that area. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what I'm doing mostly in New England right now, we can start building across the country by utilizing these guys. And I I don't necessarily see it as a long-term play for them, but it seems like every guy gets out and has about that year and a half of where they're trying to figure out what they need to do. And so if I can pay them during that time and give back to their community and make them the the subject matter expert for law enforcement on a response to critical incident, then that just makes sense to me, right? And then I can scale accordingly. Um, you know and the limiting factor is just the money and and that's kind of what we're pushing right now and we really haven't done anything to get national exposure other than you know, I've gone on TV a few times to talk about it but uh just starting the podcast now is really trying to introduce people to what's going on in, in, in the world in the country are you going to start your own podcast I am not I I, I I don't think I have what you have as
1: far as being able to. What, leave. you mean stupidity, blind? Uh, yes, just. that's exactly. Yeah, I would never call you stupid. You like, uh, got just, me by 100
0: pounds. Come uh, on.
1: no, <laughs> no, it's uh, no. I, I just call it like. Uh, Behind your back, I would. Yeah, well, not to your face. Yeah, not to your face. Yeah. Uh, but like, just like, uh, yeah, because I think, uh, you know, obviously you can come on other people's podcasts, yeah. but it'd be an interesting piece to at least keep in the back of your mind. Um, I know when we started the podcast, I wasn't even on it. So when Power Think Radio started, I wasn't even, uh, it was my coaches and some other people, and I was a special guest. Yeah. And then the more and more I got into it, um, I've kind of enjoyed, one, it allows you to increase your genealogy, you know, and like the connection points and this, and you get to have amazing conversations like this with people that are literally outside, even though, you know, what's amazing is uh, even though we didn't know each other before this, the fact that we have so much common yeah. friends. It's, it's kind of like my buddy Rick always says, when you push out to the fringe, it's like one degree of separation, Absolutely, you know? And, um, it's a, it's an interesting piece in that you're trying to bring your community, which has such a intrinsic value and, you know, and be able to use it in such a way. I mean, the guys, when they retire, all of a sudden they have all this like historical knowledge that, It's great that they're able to download and, and, you know, be able to continue to spread it and use it and hopefully put these guys in a better situation because I I think the, in preparation for this, it was like each day there's over three and a half million interactions with law enforcement by the average, by like, you know, citizens across the United States. So, you know, we have about 330 million people in this country. There's three, I think it's like three and a half, 3.2 million interactions with law enforcement that happen. And the reason that statistic was interesting was that they were, oh, you know, every interaction with law enforcement is negative in this. And they, you know, they want to show these, you know, almost like Roman candle moments. And they're like, okay, here was one interaction in the point of three million that day that ended up not going well. And that's all you want to correct. You know, you didn't talk about the, you know, the lady had a heart attack that law enforcement kicked in the door to save her life or this person or this, I mean, all these other, you know, good stories. And I think being able to shine a light on what law enforcement's doing well, because all we ever see in the media is all the negatives.
0: And, and, you know, we're talking about the negatives as well, right? Because no matter how good you are at your job, in in me being at the tip of the spear and, and where I was there was never a point in my career where we we weren't trying to get better. And I think you you can't be in a community or a profession like law enforcement and not constantly be trying to improve. And, you know, now- But that's not
1: the mindset, is it?
0: I I don't think it is. I think with the individual officers in many cases, it is. I think certainly the tactical side, um, SWAT, I I think most cases it is. And I think there's a lot of younger officers that that are coming in and are very motivated to do the things that aren't being done. But, you know, in, like we see in the military, policy kind of is a stalemate at times. Like they want to do it, but they're just not allowed to do it. Yeah. Or they don't have the means to do it. So, again, I go back to the advocacy part. We're trying to affect that. Um, and it, it's I, I know it's an uphill battle but I'm, I'm going to be the squeaky wheel and yeah. I'm going to keep talking until someone starts listening. And I would love to get people in DC to, on board is how much money we're we shelling overseas oh, to help other countries to, with their problems. When we can affect this
1: problem right now. I think all that overseas money just looks like creative money laundering to me.
0: Yeah. Well, you call it what you want, yeah, but
1: <laughs> you know, you can't tell me we don't have the money to
0: fix this problem. No, we, I mean, you know, 100% it, we do. And, uh,
1: you know, like, uh, whether it's government subsidies or yeah. it's even, you know, Local donors. I think if you, as a private citizen, want to have better interactions with law enforcement, um, you know, I think it, you know behooves you to be able to go out and invest into things like this. Sure. I mean, I would love to know that if I'm going to get pulled over or if uh, law enforcement's going to come to my aid in some way, yep. I want to make sure that they're as proficient as possible and have every available, yeah. you know, uh, training, uh, yeah. you know, opportunity. You know, this. I mean, I would hate to, you know, be in a life and day situation and you know, all of a sudden. You know, yeah. uh, like when Barney Fife shows up with his 40 hours and is over there, yeah. you know, with his wheel gun slinging from his hip. I'm like, nah, that's not yeah. what I need. And, and,
0: and it's it's a fear response, right? It's fight or flight. It's, it's a physiological response to being put in stress that, you know, some people have it, the ability to handle it. Most people don't. And some people you can teach, you know, you can take them from here to here. And some people you can't. But in law enforcement, with the amount of officers you have, you can't do selection the way we do it in the military and special sure. forces right because you wouldn't have anybody left you wouldn't sure. have enough options to do it so there has to be you know i think there should be some level of of selection in law enforcement beyond what we have now but you can affect that also by providing a better level of training specifically at at the you know recruitment stages and and the academy stages that will help
1: identify who's better prepared to handle those types of situations. Do you think recruiting out of ex-military is the right way? I mean, we were talking about the Nashville deal where it just so happened that there was some ex-military guys that were pretty aggressive and were proficient. I I I think, I I don't know that's ever not the deal. I think
0: that happens pretty, pretty frequently, but we're in a time where people don't want to be police officers and it's, I can't blame them. Like, why would you, you know, that situation in, um, San Antonio right now where the, the head of the department came out and criticized his officers for um, shooting the woman with the with the hammer. I don't know if you saw that. I it was, did not. You know, within a day, didn't let the information play out. It's just like, that's not our department policy. And four officers now are getting arrested for shooting this woman who was, you know, attacking them with, with a gun. And now I can look at the video and be like, man, that might not be your policy, but that's exactly how you train.
1: Uh, if you, you have ever, a policy, train to your policy. Have you ever, uh, like, so, um- Guns don't make me nearly as nervous as knives. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, like whenever I see the knife videos or like, you know, like uh, Tony Blower, right. uh, like it will always forward me all these like, you know, uh, closed circuit TV. Yep. And, you know, I've seen all this different stuff. I mean, where people get hit with knives and the amount of distance that somebody can cover and stab you is like a lot of times much quicker than somebody can draw from conceal and shoot. Yeah. And like, you know, so whenever they're Uh, like, oh, you know, this guy, this guy, you know, there was a situation, this guy got shot, he had a knife. And people like, oh, he only had a knife. I'm like, dude. Or shoot the wound. Yeah.
0: (laughs) When (laughs) the president is saying, why didn't we just shoot him in the leg? That is a problem, right? Uh,
1: Yeah. Because you know what? If somebody were to rush the secret service and rush the president, are they going to shoot the wound?
0: If he had talked to anybody. In any profession that is required to carry a weapon or has to
1: use it, special operations, sea surf, they would have told him why. I, I have a hard time. Yeah. Uh, I, and I've made no illusions on this podcast on how much I dislike Joe Biden as right. not, not only a human, but forever. I mean, uh, like, you know, all you got to do is go back and look at the uh, 92 crime bill. And, you know, I mean, I remember my dad telling me years ago that there was probably no individual that did more harm to the black community and taking fathers out of the homes mm-hmm. and this. I mean, Biden's shit. I mean, he's he's. I mean, he had to walk on his, uh, the, you know, one of the first times he tried to run for president because he, you know, accused of plagiarism and he's lied and this and he's claimed he's done. I mean, the amount of bullshit that Joe Biden has pulled over these years and that they just were able to fucking whitewash by hiding him in a basement because Donald Trump was, uh, you know, got a fucking terrible spray tan, terrible hair, <laughs> terrible fitting suits and says crazy shit. Like I like and tweets. It, yeah. I mean like, I like first of all, like sitting on the toilet at two in the morning tweeting as a president of the United yeah. States, like get rid of your fucking Twitter. And like one, like get a better haircut. You're a billionaire. Get a better fitting suit. Like the, the ties are too long. Like there's so much that bothers me. But, uh, you know, but then you have a, a guy who, uh, like, I'm pretty sure they have him whacked on, like, Adderall and something to be able to wheel his fucking ass out there because he's in the, you know, deep in the throes of dementia. And to me, it's elderly abuse to even be putting him out there. And it's even more insulting as an American citizen to think that's the face of our fucking country. I mean, it's, um, I mean, we, we live in a time, and you know this, I mean, shit, there's cryptocurrencies, there's cell phones in this, and we keep electing, uh, uh, you know, elected officials like the President of the United States that, like, you know, I mean, what, born in what, the 30s and the 40s? Yeah. I mean, you're talking about a guy that potentially around World War II. I mean, it's just like, it's not yeah. the person we need. They almost need the limit. Be like, dude, if you're too far. Like, if you were uh, a grandfather when you got a, when cell phones were <laughs> invented, you got no business being president. Yeah, it's wild times. Yeah, we're, uh, uh, and I'm kind of nervous for what we see in the next yeah. uh, two years.
0: And you know, I, I on the nonprofit side, 100%, my, my own political views don't come into play. I, I remain very um, apolitical right down yeah, the middle. Very and I actually have gotten a lot of support from the left. And I know that that sounds weird because the left you think um, defund the police, this, I mean, Massachusetts, I had a a democratic um, state congressman and a senator go to bat for me on the budget and but, get hey, me but a lot. The, them.
1: I don't think it's a right, uh, you know, left wing, right wing, it you know, it, it's not a situation. But that's like, what
0: the media is pushing.
1: Yeah, but right? you know, the community safety. The, the media everybody. is fucking toxic in every ways. Yeah. And anybody that says that or not is full of shit. I mean, community safety, and I think it's a bipartisan issue that you should want to have law enforcement and police officers. Because here's the deal, yes. whether or not you want them or not, they exist. Right. And they yeah. serve a function in society. So it, it, it is our responsibility to make sure that if we're putting people on the street, we have to take, you know, they have to have the best opportunity available to do the best they can. Absolutely. It's like uh, I've always said in this country, if you're going to send people to war, you have a fiscal and social responsibility to take care of them when they come home. Right. Like you can't just abandon your, you know. Broken yep. toys and send them to the island of misfit toys. You have to take care of your broken toys when they come home, yep. and you know what. And if you don't, you send people to war. When you come home, you have to take care of them. You can't ask people to go do it and not. And I think it's uh, to me. I mean, that's like when you know when they like America. This I'm like, dude, like you send soldiers to war and they come home and they're broken and the you know vets are committing suicide. You have to find a way to fix that issue. Yeah, and if it's you know giving them better purpose and and you know like you know within the training or even within law enforcement, I think that's a smart play. Yeah, I mean acts of service are, are
0: therapeutic right it's kind of why i started doing it and i started working with one summit which is a, a uh, charity started by a seal up in boston that pairs up um, navy seals with pediatric cancer patients um, for resiliency training and and taking them rock climbing right who would think to take a pediatric cancer patient out of the hospital to go indoor rock climbing for a day well a fucking navy seal would right <laughs> and it had it was the first time I did it, I got more out of that than the kids and just seeing how tough and strong those kids were. And that kind of drove me to want to have, you know my own nonprofit and do some some service related stuff. And I just knew what my community was. I knew it was law enforcement from the get go.
1: So what was your, um, you know, every one of the SEALs I've met that were kind of in your uh, demographic, like they had one thing that was kind of unique to them. That was like, like what was your specialty? I, I was always a breacher. So, the explosives. Yeah. Um,
0: and, you know, we, we we have to be proficient in everything, kind of masters of nothing type people. But, you know, I get to a point in a career where you kind of have to focus on something, whether it's, you know, air or, or sniper or, or breacher or whatever it was. So, for me, breacher. Just I wanted to be the first guy in the door. Hmm. And, uh, you know, sitting behind a gun somewhere else wasn't going to be that guy.
1: Well, that's a pretty good... Um, analogy for what you're doing today, you know, tip of the spear, first guy through the door looking to help.
0: Oh, I appreciate that I, I never thought of it like that but I, it, it makes sense to me so
1: so if people want yeah. to know more how do, how do they get uh,
0: uh, how, how do they find you how do they reach out now, c1p.org that's my website and you know we're, we're still pretty new so we're, we're going through those growing pains of building the website and social media and all that. you know it, that is not my wheelhouse <laughs> I don't think it will ever be my wheelhouse but eventually yeah. I'll find like an 18 year old kid that yeah. is their wheelhouse they're like so, hey we're, uh, yeah.
1: you're really big on TikTok you're like yeah, what, uh, would, uh, say, what? what is yeah, I, I can't uh, believe
0: them on (laughs) tiktok but uh but you know we're trying to get better at it but yeah to me i spend a lot of my time either fundraising or training but c1p.org that that's where you go and uh, you can email me directly through there you can check out my instagram um, as we start populating more all that is on there Um, you can make donations on there which would be huge you know every bit helps Um, i tell people if you want to sponsor training for your local police department let's talk Right. And there's a lot of people that listen to these podcasts that are, are pro police officer and are already supporting their law enforcement in some way or another. Like, here, here's a way to get them the best training they'll ever have. Um, so, um, you know, any corporate connections are always great. So, I encourage people if they, they have something that they think can help this mission, reach out. Awesome. And of course, law enforcement. If you need help, shoot me an email. Um, I will never say no. I doesn't mean I can get down there and train wherever you're at, but I will get on the phone, we'll talk, and we'll see what we can do. Sometimes just reviewing SOPs and TTPs is enough to kind of point them in the right direction. And then just if I don't have answers on equipment, gear, whatever it is, I'll put you in touch with the person that does. So there are things we can do in the meantime until I can scale enough to be able to affect um, nationally um, policing. So we're trying it's it's uh building a business is hard building a nonprofit is is different yeah as you know
1: yeah no we we started in 2012 yeah 2012 was our uh we started wade's army so yep. yeah man uh any way i can help just let me know i appreciate that
0: man this is huge i appreciate you having me here and, and the conversation and yeah this is a great experience yeah we'll see you again well
1: thanks for tuning in to another yes. episode of power
0: the radio see you <laughs>